All right, gang. <clears throat> I was telling somebody earlier that um, one of my concerns as a pastor is always whether or not I'm going to have enough to say to fill the time, and um, that is not the problem today. We we have a lot to say, and actually, that's never a problem anytime. <laughs> um, so let's um, let me just lead us. We're dealing with a sensitive, important subject, and so let me just lead us in prayer. Thank you, Father, for our time together. Would you guide us and direct us, help us to think clearly about what the Scriptures have to say about um, this important issue, an issue that we wish we might say that we would never run across in ministry, but uh, we just know because of the pervasiveness of sin and particularly the adversary's desire to destroy relationships, that this is one area where... um, Perhaps we are particularly prone and susceptible, certainly to facing attack. And uh, we will experience this in our counseling rooms uh, far more than we would desire to. And, uh, and yet, Father, we understand that you are the, the God who buys sin, and you redeem it, and you restore, and we are grateful for that. And uh, grateful for so many who have walked through these dark valleys and seeing restoration and um, forgiveness, reconciliation, and vibrant, thriving marriages. And we're, we would ask that you would give us wisdom to help people to build those kinds of relationships. And we pray this in Christ's name and for His glory. Amen. How many of you guys are actively counseling right now? I think you guys are, right? Wow, so about half of you guys, a little bit more. Um, I don't know how many of you have addressed this issue in the counseling room of adultery, but uh, I can promise you, you will. If you're in the counseling room, you're going to see it. Um, And it is, it is perhaps one of the most devastating, I I hate to use unqualified language, um, like it is the most devastating, but it's just right up there. I came across this article, a gal named Wendy Plump. Uh, wrote about her husband's adultery, I believe it was in the New York Times, uh, called A Room Full of Yearning and Regret. She writes this, I knew I needed to stop it. She actually committed adultery as well. She said, I knew I needed to stop it, but I didn't have the will to do it on my own. So I had to enlist my husband to tell him so that we could battle this together. So I admitted to the affair one evening after dinner. Almost 20 years after that confession, I can still remember how the whole world narrowed down to the two of us sitting there, that new truth congealing between us. Once the affair is out in the open, you will strive mightily to justify yourself. You will begin many sentences with the phrase, I never meant to. But one look at the hollow-eyed, defeated form of your spouse will remind you that such a claim is beside the point. You can get both get over this, yes. But the innocence will have gone out of your union, and it will seem as if bone has been broken and healed, but that one rain or cold weather can set it to throbbing again. So now take the other side. You discover your cheating spouse, as I once did. And what you experience is not far removed from post-traumatic stress. It is a form of shock. As your mind struggles to accommodate this wrenching reality, you won't be able to sleep or focus. Your fight-or-flight mechanism will go haywire. You will become consumed with where your spouse is at any moment, even if you see him in the pool with your children. You will lose your appetite. Stress will blow out your metabolism. You will torture yourself with details known and imagined. You will fit together the mysteries of his daily pattern like a wicked puzzle. Every absence or unexplained late night or new habit or sudden urge to join a gym, for instance, will suddenly make horrible sense. You will wonder why you were so stupid. But as the writer Paul Thoreau says in one of his travel logs, it is very easy to plant a bomb in a peaceful, trusting place. That is what the cheating spouse has done, then detonated it. Sooner or later, your illicit, once-beloved object of affection will become tawdry and wearying. You will come to long for simple, honest pleasures like making dinner with your sons or going out to the movies without having to look over your shoulder. I look at my parents and I wonder how much simpler their lives are at ages of 75, mostly because they haven't marred the landscape with grand-scale deceit. They have this marriage of 50-some years behind them, and it is a monument to success. 
a few weeks or months of illicit passion could not hold a candle to it. Sobering, isn't it? I think she really captures well the the anguish that people in that kind of relationship experience. Um, when I was in college, um, pastor of our church frequently addressed sexual sin in his sermons. And I remember going home from church one Sunday and had my parents saying in the front seat of the car, what is the deal with pastor so-and-so? He just he just seems to be obsessed about sex. All he ever talks about in his sermons is sex. And I thought, well, I don't know. Okay, mom and dad are right, I guess. I don't know. I wasn't married. I didn't know any different. I've been a pastor for over 30 years. I understand why he talks about it. He understood his people and where his people are, where they were struggling. They were the real issues of their lives. And people will come to you with this. They will come with sexual sin. You'll just see it. People will come with other problems. And you start probing a little bit and you're going to find these issues as well. Um, And adultery is at the head of problem with sexual sin and marriage. And, um, And we want to help people understand where the answers are for it in the scriptures. Let me just talk to you about a couple of preliminary things as we head into this. And that is goals. Randy Patton says the hardest cases are the ones you grow in. Remember, as you're heading into this case about adultery, it's not just about their transformation, it is, but it's also about your transformation, about the protection of your own home and family. And trust me, you will go away from those meetings and you will go home and cling to your wife. And more than one occasion, my wife has said to me, okay, who did you talk to today? (laughs) Because you seem particularly affectionate and particularly clingy. That's good for me. Um, you will also grow in skill as a counselor as you're just desperate to try and help them, to move them beyond, to help them see the gravity of their sin and the hopefulness of Christ and Christ's ability to reconcile and restore. You will work hard and uh, that will be to your benefit and you will grow. Robert Jones asked the question, is this a ministry nightmare or is it an opportunity? And you have before you a couple that in one sense you're saying this is a nightmare, and and in some level it is. <laughs> but what if God would, but what if God would be pleased to restore that couple? And now you you get to be the one. Of, and I think about this regularly. Of all the however many seven and a half billion people in this world, God has chosen me to minister to this couple in the deepest part of their need. And so it's a tremendous opportunity and a tremendous grace for us. When that couple is in front of you and they start unpacking what's gone on, what's your goal with them? Glorify God. You want to help them glorify God regardless of how either responds. Everything in life terminates on God, right? And so our goal when we're counseling, I want this fixed. Is this a primary goal? Well, it is a primary goal. It's not the primary goal, right? It's the most important relationship I have on earth. But it's not the most important. What's most important is this relationship. And if I say this is first and this is second, if I lose this, I lose everything. But if I say this is first, which it is, and this is second, I can lose what's second. Because sometimes when they come to you with this problem, they're not going to get restored. You want to be hopeful that they can, but they won't always. And if this gets lost, if I have this, I'm still satisfied. So my goal for the husband and the wife both is live for God. Live for His glory. Find your satisfaction in Him. Pursue delight in Him. Feed your heart on Him. As an overflow of that, serve your spouse. And then guess what happens? The closer 
they're each growing to Christ, they're also growing closer together, aren't they? Right? So keep the first goal, the first goal, so that they're always working for the glory of God and pursuing Him. That goes to this next uh, statement. If both parties are committed to glorifying God, the complete reconciliation, restoration, growth, and unity of marriage is the main expression of that goal. So if, if the husband says, I want to live for the glory of God, okay, as an overflow of living for the glory of God is you're going to give up this other relationship and you're going to pursue the relationship with your wife. And we'll talk in a moment about some of, some of those things. As they come to you, just be aware of some of the potential circumstances of adultery. This is not, these are not causes. These are just circumstances. These are life circumstances, life situations, but a lot of us are in these situations and we never do commit this sin, right? So it's not, it's not something that must compel them to that, but it is something in which they are living that may entice them in particular ways. And I'm just going to run through these really quickly. Unsatisfactory spousal support or encouragement. There may be a sense of aloneness in the marriage. I'm walking this marriage alone. There's nobody with me. And that's going to set them up uh, to look for, for intimacy somewhere else. They have unresolved conflict with their mate. Um, so they're fighting about finances and it just it's it stays unresolved and then that just starts bleeding over into other into other kinds of sin. I always say we never sin in isolation, right? So we we never eat one Dorito um, in my life. You never eat one piece of chocolate, right? You never have one Diet Coke. You never have one cup of coffee. You know, it's always multiple. <laughs> yes. So it you know, it's never just one, and it's the same thing with sin. Whenever you're sinning in one area of your life and you're, and you're validating that and you're saying it's okay, it's just this one thing, it in, inevitably will bleed into other areas of your life as well. And that is particularly true with sexual sin. They have unsatisfactory sexual relationships. And, and just make a note, that might be the cause of the adultery or it could be the effect of the adultery. And you're not, not going to know that until you start doing some probing and asking questions. They may come from a family where adulterous and sexual sins were not unusual. They've, they've learned it in their childhood home. They have disregard for accountability and authority. They have a sense of entitlement. I deserve more than I'm getting. Um, I have a right to this. It's, it's something that ought to be bequeathed to me, if you will. Breakdown of the extended family removes barriers of accountability and support. Promiscuity is more accepted by our culture. Adultery is more common among people who've had earlier adolescent sexual activity. And just just note this. This is where you really want to help your teens. Um, Kind of preemptive teaching. It's easier to not start than to stop. Right? I'll just watch two innings of the ball game. Well, two innings becomes three. Three becomes five. Twenty minutes becomes an hour and a half. Becomes three and a half. Right? But if I don't turn on the TV, it's zero. And it's really not a struggle because the TV's already off. It's that way with sexual sin particularly. Changing attitudes towards sexual sins among professing believers. Um, They're dissatisfied or bored with other parts of their life. They're looking for excitement and pleasure. Um, They enjoy testing limits. They're highly competitive. It's a challenge. It's a conquest. Can I win? Can I get what I want? If they're young believers, they may come with a lengthy history of sexual sin, have not been taught biblically how those desires can and should change. Oh, did I? Did you get that? I'm going... They're competitive. Um, lengthy history. Yep, there we go. Desires, expectations. Oh, okay, here we go. I'm so lost. (laughs) I'm clicking and not watching the screen. Uh, They're attempting to punish the spouse for what he or she isn't doing as an effort to manipulate or change the spouse or circumstances. Sometimes that happens when one spouse commits adultery, then the other one in retribution goes to commit adultery as well. And now you've really complicated the situation. 
they engage in other patterns of sin. I've talked about that as well. Um, what are some of the primary causes of adultery? It seems self-apparent, but let me just underscore this, underline it. Adultery is the work of the flesh. The person who commits adultery is not living under the power of the Spirit. It doesn't matter what else he's doing. It doesn't matter how good his sermons sound. It doesn't matter how effective he is in evangelism. It doesn't matter how many children she brings to Awana. If they're committing adultery, they're living in the flesh. You cannot be spiritual and living in that kind of a relationship. In fact, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is the will of God, your sanctification. What is sanctification, Paul? That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. So Paul, Paul says one of the fundamental identifying marks of sanctification, that someone is walking with Christ, living under the power and authority of the Spirit of God, is that they are sexually pure. And so if you have someone that is sexually impure, you can just say that that person is not sanctified or being sanctified. Listen to what R.C. Sproul says. In every single marriage that ends... In disaster, some stupid decisions were made with respect to God's regulations. If God's regulations were followed scrupulously, not only would there be no divorces, there would be no unhappy marriages. To violate the regulations of God is not only an exercise in disobedience, but an exercise in foolishness as well. If you want a happy marriage, the most intelligent thing you can do is to submit to God's regulations. They are designed to promote and protect your full happiness. God fully plan- carefully planned them. But before the regulations of God can work for our happiness, we have to know what they are. So again, study is required so that we may not only know the wisdom of God, but master it. Um, So let me just underscore this. Whatever else you're going to say about the adulterer and his spiritual condition, it cannot be said that he is spiritual or walking under the power of the Spirit. And you just need to know that going in. Don't make assumptions. He's a pastor. He's an elder. He's a deacon. He's been teaching Sunday school. For 22 years, don't make the assumption, well, underneath this sin is a spiritual man. Underneath that, spirit, underneath that sin is a fleshly man or a woman. And so you need to understand that. Understand this as well. Whoops. Adultery is not accidental. Adultery reveals the meditations and the desires of the sinner's heart. Guard your heart, for from it flow the wellspring of life. So whatever comes out in the life comes from the heart. And so when someone commits adultery, what we see is the last step in a 30-step process to get there. They've been going down for a long time. And that's where their heart is. Um, Adultery is... Not accidental. It is purposeful. From the standpoint of the adulterer, it is intentional. Says Wayne Mack, if nasty, sinful stuff comes out of us, the problem is not with our actions, but rather with our hearts. If adultery comes out of the heart, it's because the heart is not clean. Adultery comes out because adultery is inside. One of my two best friends in seminary emailed me many years ago now, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. Um, He and I used to correspond very regularly, and then, I don't know, it had been six months or a year since I'd heard from him, and so I just thought, I'll just drop my line and see what's going on. And he responded and said this, I would appreciate your prayers as my wife and I recently separated I left the church in January. I wish I could say it looked hopeful, but I gave up and fell. And that's hard to recover from. That's code for I committed adultery. And it destroyed his 
wife and family's relationship with him. He did get divorced. In a recent conversation with him, I believe he said he has not spoken to or seen his son in eight years. And it's a direct fallout from that. Again, Wayne Mack, Florence Lidauer has rightly written, no good Christian man gets up in the morning and says, my, this is a lovely day. I guess I'll go out and commit adultery. Yet many do it anyway. And the question is this, why is it true that many do it anyway? Because they have not continuously by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit and through the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ purified their hearts and filled them with godly thoughts and godly desires and because the cravings and desires of their hearts have become idolatrous. So you can just put in your notes, the adulterer is an idolater. He's got a worship problem. He's worshiping something that will never satisfy him like Christ will. Um, Just a side note as well. The church and the counselor need to have a clearly defined and communicated position on divorce and remarriage and think through how this is going to be applied in counseling situations. And along with that, just want to be proactive about building relationships, cultivating relationships within the body, discipling training. Uh, Biblical reasons to work towards reconciliation (laughs) because we're one. Right? So it's one flesh. The preacher says, I now pronounce you husband and wife, and you're one. You've made the covenant with God, and you're one. Um, And why do you work to preserve that oneness? Because that oneness is a picture of Christ and the church. It's not just my marriage. It's not just about me and Regine. It's wonderful and we love each other and we are more satisfied with each other today than we have ever been in our married life. And that's great, but that's not ultimate. Ultimately, our marriage is a picture of Christ's commitment to the church. That's why we preserve it. That's why we take the energy to work on restoring Because it's a means of sanctification for both parties, both husband and wife, both sinned and sinned against in that context. It's going to reveal for both of them whether they're living for themselves or whether they're living for Christ. It will reveal how they have inadequately fulfilled their roles and responsibilities in their marriage. It will teach them to love without demanding love in return. I remember John Piper saying this many years ago. I don't remember even the context, but it just stuck with me. And he says this, it is necessary to love, not to be loved. I have to love. I don't have to be loved. Why? Because I'm loved by Christ. I have the ultimate from Christ. I don't need to be loved. Is it easier to live life if you're loved by others? Absolutely. But we don't need that. What we do need is to love. And you want to help the couple with that. It may teach them how to make Christ and not their mate their identity. And it's going to expose other areas of sin that need transformation. Uh, Because they haven't sinned in isolation, right? When they're committing adultery, there are inevitably a host of other things that are going on in their marital relationship. Um, And you're going to want to help them with those things as well. Reconcile because it will teach both parties the cost, extent, and grace of forgiveness. Without fail, every couple that I've counseled that has gone through adultery and made it through, and if they make it through, they inevitably end up thriving in some way. Every single one of them has told me, I would never wish this on anyone else, but I'm so thankful that we've gone through it. And I've learned things that I could have never learned any other way. Every single one of them has said it. And part of what they learn is, the husband can say, I know when she says I forgive you, just how far her forgiveness will go. Did that come at a cost? Yeah, it was huge. But now he knows, and now she knows. We're together and if that didn't break us apart, nothing is going to break us apart. And that's, that's a grace to them. Uh, reconcile, because it will teach patience 
and endurance. Reconcile because it will teach them to identify with Christ's suffering. Reconcile for the benefit of the children. You want to model for the kids the joy and hope of reconciliation. I mean, even just in even just in everyday conflict. It's not like I I said, okay, I want to give the kids a lesson today about forgiveness, so I'm going to provoke a fight with Regine so I can model that for them. I never did that. But but when Regine and I were in a conflict that was in front of the kids, in some sense, it didn't really bother me. Because I I knew if I, if if we're sinning in public, we're going to restore in public, and I'm going to, it's going to, it's going to give them an opportunity to see this is what. Confession and forgiveness looks like in a normal home. Um, so conflict from that standpoint doesn't bother me. Unresolved conflict bothers me tremendously. Um, and, and this is another one of those. If the kids come to find out, and sometimes they will and sometimes they won't, this gives them an opportunity to see this is what the grace of Christ can do to fix homes and relationships. All right, let's talk about data gathering. What kinds of things? A couple comes in, the phone rings, and uh, you hear on the other end someone sobbing or quiet or somber saying, Pastor, I've got to talk to you. Um, I just found out. And you say, okay, I'm coming over. What are you going to ask? Um, you, want to under- you want to figure out how was the adultery discovered? You want, under- you want to find out did the, did the adulterer confess the adultery on their own? Or were they found out by some other means by the sinned against party? Was it a public discovery or a private discovery? Why is that important? Why is that important, public or private? Yeah, it's how, it, how it gets resolved and to whom it gets resolved. Because if, if, it's, if it's public, right... If if her brother calls her and says, I just ran into your husband at such and such, and now he knows, his wife knows, and their kids know, and now you've you've got all kinds of other people you've got to deal with. So you need to know that kind of information. What type of adultery occurred? <laughs> what do I mean by that? Um, was it one time while the person was intoxicated? Or was it in a relationship that's akin to marriage? Was it with one person, one time? Was it with 12 people, an uncountable number of times? Adultery is adultery. But there are, manif- there are, there are ramifications for when it happens, where it happens, and with how many people it happens. And so you're going to need to know that information. And just a side note, I think I've got this in my notes several times, but just make a note of this. Start, underline it. When you are probing for information the first time, never make the assumption you're getting all the, all the information the first time. You're not. I think it is, I think I can say this. Every time I've counseled with this kind of sin, I don't think I've ever discovered everything the first time. And so the second time I'm asking the second questions again and probing a little harder and pushing a little deeper. And then they'll go, well, I probably ought to tell you. And you're just going to get more information. So just take the information they get, give you, but just understand you're, you're going to need to keep probing. How frequent was the adultery? How many people were involved? Are the other parties married? And that's obviously significant. How's the other spouse responding? Um, what are they doing? I want to know how the offended part- partner is responding, right? So if the husband's committed adultery, I want to know where, where's the wife? How she's hand- how's she handling it? How she's, how is she processing it? What's she thinking? Is she already was her first phone call to a lawyer and the second phone call to you, right? So you need to know that kind of information. Um, just a side note, I don't think it's actually in your notes. When I'm asking about sexual sin, the adultery, I push way beyond that. 
right? So I'm also asking about pornography. I'm also asking about masturbation. I'm asking about homosexual sin. I'm asking about all that stuff because they've already, they've already determined that they're going outside the bounds that God has set. I want to know how far they've gone out. And in this culture, in this day, I can just about guarantee if they're committing sexual sin and, and adultery, I can just about guarantee that pornography, pornography and masturbation are almost guaranteed to be part of it. Um, so you're going to want to know that. Um, how is the offending partner responding? Is the offending partner defensive? So the sinner, is he defensive, resistant, angry, resentful, or is he broken, contrite, repentant? What does he or she want to do? Are they ready to bolt and go to the other person? Are they brokenhearted, despairing, and wanting to keep the relationship and just not sure what to do? Are they believers? If they're not believers, how can you use the circumstance to move them to the gospel in a winsome and loving way? Um, if they are not believers, wow, this is a great opportunity to help them say, help them see this, this is hopeless except for Christ. And Christ buys this stuff all the time. And, um, and that makes the gospel attractive. You want to help them in light of that. If they're believers, help them see what, who or what they are genuinely worshiping. Um, is the other party a believer? If the other party is a believer, is that person a member of our church? And if they're a member of our church, how are we going to handle that? Because they're going to see each other every week. Now what do you do? Um, if the party's a member of another church, how do you handle that? Does the other church know? And what's your relationship going to be with that other church? And how are you going to help them? Um, you are going to want to do extensive and intensive data gathering. And at some point, it's going to vary depending on the circumstances. Um, sometimes you'll meet with the offending person first because that's the way it comes up. Sometimes you meet with them as a couple first, but invariably you're going to want to meet with the offending person alone. So you can just push further because not everything that you need to know is going to be immediately helpful for the person that's been sinned against. And you want to be careful about that. Um, so you're going to want to meet with the offending partner alone to get all of the information. Um, if you've worked on these kinds of things before, you're sitting there and saying, I've got to ask questions because I've got to know how to help them. But really, you don't want to know. And can I just encourage you, when that happens... Just pray then in that moment and later and say, Lord, I need this now. I need to help this couple, but I cannot retain it. So keep me from meditating on it. And then you need to actively not meditate on the information they're giving you. Um, and help me to forget it when the time to forget it is here. And there have been, honestly, in, in God's grace, he'll answer that prayer for you. There have been many times where people have five years later, Ten years later, come up and talked about stuff with me in private about their previous situation, and I'm just scratching my head, thinking, oh, "Okay, I should have that," <laughs> and it's gone. And um, and that's a grace. Um, that being said, if you have not counseled in this situation, I will just tell you, having supervised enough people, <laughs> there is a reticence to ask the questions that need to be asked. It's just really uncomfortable to ask questions about the most intimate private parts of a person's life, but you've got to ask the questions. Um, I remember when, when I was being supervised by Randy Patton many years ago now, um, he was listening to a recording and it was a couple, if I remember right, there were some, um, there were some issues about her attraction to homosexual sin. And I kicked the door open on it 
And I don't even remember what the question was anymore. And when Randy and I were talking about about that situation, <laughs> he said, um, well, I was kind of surprised you kicked the door open to that to that issue. But as soon as you kicked it open, you walked away. Why did you stop? <laughs> I said, because I'm an idiot. I don't know. <laughs> if you start probing, just keep keep asking the next natural question. So if you're asking about adultery, what's the next natural question? How many people? How many times? Where? Under what circumstances? How did you meet them? How did you communicate? Just keep probing and asking until you've got all the answers. And is it easy? No. But you've got to know so that you know the extent of the sins so that you can help them. Um, Because there is... Adultery is adultery, but there's a difference between there's a one-night stand which has provoked immense brokenness and a repeated pattern for 25 years. And you're going to counsel those differently. So you need to, you need to know about that. Giving hope. How in the world are you going to give this couple hope? Well, you're going to go to texts. I wouldn't pull out Romans 8, 28 and 29 the first day. Um, but you're going to pull out a text like that eventually to help them see this is God sanctifying you. God uses the brokenness of our sin and the sins of people that have sinned against us for our good, for our transformation. Uh, you're going to use a Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. Why are you in despair, O oh my soul? Hope in your wife. Oh, wait a minute. That's not what the text says, is it? Hope in God. You're going to praise Him again. You find your hope in Him. Psalm 46. Where are you seeking your refuge? Where are you going for safety and comfort? Right now, today. As the sin of your wife is being revealed, where, where's the safe zone? And the safe zone is where? God and Christ and the Spirit of God. You're going to go to 1 Corinthians 10.13. There's nothing unusual. It's tragic, but it's not unusual, unfortunately. And God is faithful in the middle of that. You're going to go to Psalm 32, Psalm 51, the brokenness of David, and remind them that that wasn't the final part of the story. The final part of the story is that David was a man after God's own heart. And that was the final benediction on David's life. Um, so you want to you want to make sure to give them hope. You want to you want to help them to recognize that it's it is a forgivable, restorable sin. You want to remind them that God is present with the offended spouse and will provide the needed grace, comfort, care, and strength that the offended spouse needs. Isn't it interesting? Um, Hebrews thirteen. He himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So I can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Do you remember the context in which that's said? The verse immediately preceding that, marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. And then that follows, I will never desert you nor will I ever forsake you. In the context, he's addressed sexual sin and reminding them of God's presence, God's care, God's love. So God is a comforter. God is present with the offending person and offers forgiveness and transformation for those who repent. Um, You know, 1 Corinthians 6, such were some of you. And that is very much the case for the one who sins in adultery. For the individual that chooses to trust, seek, depend on, and honor Christ, God promises to use the situation to make him look more like Christ. And if they seek to honor Christ, God will not only restore the marriage, but He will make it stronger. 
We want to help them find. Um, whoops. We want to help them find refuge in God. I don't know if that was, if that was on the slide. Help them find refuge in God rather than the seeking to control the circumstance. All right, initial commitments. They come to you. Um, you're going to want to investigate the spiritual condition. You want to know if he's really repentant, if she's really willing to forgive. If both are claiming to be believers, you want to secure a commitment from them to honor, to please, to obey God in their desires, thoughts, words, and actions. Second Corinthians 5.9, right? So whether at home or absent, we have one desire, and that's to be pleasing to God. We want to secure a commitment up front, not, not, are you, do you promise to forgive? Do you promise to repent? I mean, you, you want that, obviously, but that's not the big commitment. The big commitment is, are you willing to do whatever God says to do? Wherever that takes you, whatever needs changing, are you willing to be pleasing to the Lord? That's what you want. And then, over time, if they make that commitment, yeah, I'm willing to do whatever God says to do. Over time, when they're right kind of reticent, you can go back and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, we talked about this up front. What's changed? Why are you reticent to be pleasing to the Lord now? Um, if a commitment to honor God or a call to repent is resisted, we pursue the plan of Matthew 18. Um, won't talk about that much here because you're familiar with that from other sections. Initial commitments. Want to watch out for various dangers. Competing counsel. Okay, here's, here's our rule of thumb around here. We always want to know who her girlfriend is. Because, I promise, somebody is in her ear telling her, get rid of the slug. He's not worth it. This is your get out of jail free card. I promise you somebody's telling her that and you need to know who it is. You, and especially, especially if it's a person in your church. You want to get that person in. You want to talk to that person. And you want to, and you want to tell that person, our goal here is to help them walk with Christ and to honor Him. You want that goal for them, don't you? You don't want them to live dishonoring lives to Christ, do you? Well, nobody's going to say yes to that. So, um, or nobody's going to deny that. Um, so they're going to say, yeah, we want to help them walk with Christ. Okay, so here's how we want to help them walk with Christ. You're on board, aren't you? And you want to get that person on board. And if they don't come on board, um, if they're in your church, then you have another counseling situation on your hands. Um, but if they aren't in your church, then you want to help the person that's in that situation disconnect from them and, and find a new friend that's going to help them. You want to give them friends that will minister them, help them in ways that honor the Lord. You want to watch out for anger, bitterness, revenge. Uh, help them with Romans 12, right, 14 and following. Anger is, or vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. You don't need to worry about it. If he's unrepentant, stays unrepentant, it's okay. God's going to take care of it. I promise you, God's going to take care of it. And a whole lot better than you ever will. You want to watch for gossip? Involving others. One of the things you want to know is who knows? And what do they know? Um, do other people, do other people know? And then depending on who knows, you're going to help them draft some kind of a, I'll call it a press release statement. So that there's a joint statement from husband and wife going to that person or persons, um, who know what's going on. And honestly, if people don't know, they don't need to know. Um, numerous times I've been dealing with couples in these situations. Do mom and dad know? Nope. Do they suspect anything? Nope. Do they have any reason to know anything? Nope. I have a plan for you. Don't tell them. They don't need to know. Do your siblings know? Nope. Don't need to tell them. And the ones that do know, um, you need to craft a statement about um, how that pe- person can help you and where the couple is going in the restoration. So here's our rule of thumb. We want to keep things as private as possible as long as possible. We want to keep things as private as possible as long as possible so that, so that you can just work husband and wife, just work just with the couple without extraneous pressure from outside so that they're trying to figure out my mom is 
talking in my ear and I don't know what to do about it. And that's distracting them from working on each other. The guys at the shop are telling me this and this, and that's distracting them. So you want to keep it as private as possible as long as possible. Watch out for cynicism. He'll never repent. She'll never take me back. I can never change. This is just like my first marriage, his first marriage, whatever. You need to remind them constantly the hope of Christ. Watch out for rash decisions. Attorneys, draining bank accounts, pinging in their daily decisions. So a lot of people in these kinds of situations, they're... they're, um, struggling and so they're seeking counsel and they're seeking counsel from too many places and they're just pinging from one person to another so they're doing whatever the last person that they talked to suggested them to do and you want to you want to help them rein that in watch out for despair um if need be ask them about suicide have you thought about suicide as a way out what have you thought about suicide what's your plan when would you do it where would you go do you have access to your plan is it possible you want to know exactly how how despairing they are. Watch out for pride. Um, a sense of self-righteousness. Uh, one says, um, well, I can't believe he did that. I would never do that. Um, and becomes Mr. or Mrs. Self-righteous. You want to watch out for that. In the midst of the crisis, here's some things to watch out for. Um, the offender... The first thing I want to know is, is this thing still ongoing? What's the nature of the relationship right now, today? Where are you today? I've cut it off. How have you cut it off? Did you have a key to the apartment? Is the key destroyed? Are the pictures destroyed? Are phone contacts changed? Is social media eliminated? Is there any means by which he could contact you? How have you been contacting? Has that been changed? Right, so I'm trying to I'm trying to determine every kind of way that they're connected with each other and and how how accessible they still are to that person. When's the last time you've communicated? How did you communicate? We communicated by te- communicated by text. Do you have your phone with you? Yes. Can I see your phone? Um, have you changed your number? Here's the rule: We want to break that relationship immediately. Right. So the rule of thumb is the breaking of the relationship is immediate, unconditional, verifiable, immediate, unconditional, verifiable. It's immediate. It's not. Well, well, next week. I'll do that. No, 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 no. Today. I've got a phone in my office and we're going to make a phone call today. Right. Unconditional. What do I mean by unconditional? You don't want him picking up the phone and saying, well, I hate to do this, but my wife has been bugging me and I just, we just need to stop, you know, but, you know, maybe someday we could call and it'd be okay under these circumstances. No, 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 no. It's over. It's done. The statement is, we are finished. Do not ever attempt to contact me again. Period. It's a it's a 20 second phone call. And then when you hang up, you go to the AT&T store or whoever your carrier is and you change the phone number. And you become inaccessible. And when the girlfriend calls or somebody calls and says, hey, so and so wants to talk to you. The answer is no, I will not talk to him, tell him, I never want to see him again. Well, if I do that, I mean, that'll be offensive. And, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to hurt her feelings. <laughs> it's not the goal. Are you more concerned about her feelings? Are you more concerned about offending Christ and your wife? Um, she said that if I ever did this to her, she'd commit suicide. I don't mean this to come across harsh. I know it sounds harsh. It's not your problem. I, I would call the other pastor. 
I would call the authorities. I would call other family members. I would get other people involved in that other person's life. But that's not the adulterer's problem. And he can't say, I'm not going to break it off so that she doesn't commit suicide. He's got to break it off. Immediately. Immediate, unconditional, verifiable. Verifiable. He writes a letter and I watch it go in the mailbox. He writes an email and I watch it go on, I watch him send it. I listen on the phone call. It's verifiable. I can determine that he has done what he has said he was going to do. The offended person at the same time, yikes. Uh, we want to help them turn to Christ. We want to help them take refuge in Christ, find their solace in Him. Um, you want to find out, where, where is she going for comfort? Where is she going for help? Where is she seeking her refuge? Whoops. Um, you want to help Him admit all of the facts? Honest disclosure about all the facts? Uh, I will tell you up front, this is intensive. Um, the last time I did this um, with a couple, I met with him. I got a phone call from him, and he said, I found out about my, my wife told me something last night, and I found out more information today. We need some help. I said, um, I'll, be at your, I'll be at your house in two hours. Will you both be there? He said, yes. I said, I'm on my way. I'll get there as fast as I can. And I met with him that day. I met with him for two to three hours, just gathering data and giving a little bit of hope. And then I met with them again the next day to gather more information. And then I met with him the following day to talk about what forgiveness is going to look like. And then I met with her immediately after that talking about what confession looks like. And then about four days later, I met with both of them individually again, listening to their plans of confession that they were going to read to each other. They, they wrote five-page letters of confession to each other. It was glorious. And then we met again two days later for them to read those letters of confession to each other. It was, I promise you, I, w- w- when we got to that last day, they, they looked at me and said, I said, you know, we've been spending a lot of time together re- recently. <laughs> um, how about if we take about a week? I'll see you next, whatever the next day would be. And they said, oh, great, we're exhausted. <laughs> um, th- this is exhausting. I probably spent 20 hours with that couple that first week. Um, so you're going to want to elicit all that information. Just know that it's an all-hands-on-deck. You want to help him admit all of the facts. Now, all of the facts, I'm going to put a caveat on that. She needs to know everything, but not everything, right? So there are going to be details, questions that she might have if her husband's the adulterer, and she's going to say, well, what about, what about, what about? And you want to help referee that. Some things will be helpful for her to know. Some things will not be helpful. And that's a wisdom issue. Um, and I always tell them this. Look, if you have any questions when you're meet, meeting and talking, when I'm not around, um, if you have any question about whether or not you should answer, just bring it to me next time and we'll talk about it. Okay? So you're going to need some discernment there. You want to help her adopt a biblical view of trials and suffering, mistreatment, what it means to be sinned against and embrace God's sovereign, wise, loving purposes. The story of Joseph is so helpful there, right? Completely different context, but similar kind of principles. Um, You want to confess the sexual sin, the deception, the lies to God. Um, You want to confess to the spouse and appropriate others and seek their forgiveness. Um, the confession should also go way beyond just the circumstances, right? So adultery is a whole life sin because it's not just the sexual sin that's part of it, but it's, it's also the lies. It's the stealing of money, of time, of affection, it's misplaced desires and longings. There's all kinds of idolatry going on and all of that needs to be in the confession. So you're going to want to help them see it. We're not just talking about confessing superficial actions. Those need, obviously those need to be confessed, but you, you want to plumb deeper um, than that.
You want to help her cultivate an attitude of heart forgiveness that is unconditional in light of the gospel, even if he is unrepentant. Because even if he never comes to a place of repentance, she doesn't want to be in a place where she continues to harbor bitterness against him. She has to forgive him from the heart, even if they can't transact forgiveness. We want to develop and implement a biblical, thorough action plan for repentance and change, specific, concrete, measurable steps, include a temptation plan. What are you going to do to keep from falling in this hole again? And, um, and then allow time for the spouse to forgive. Sometimes the spouse forgives immediately, quickly. Sometimes it's like, I've got to chew on this a while. Let him chew on it a while. The, the adultery has been happening for months or years. Uh, give, the, give the offended party some time to come to a biblical response. And then the offended party is going to want to grant fellowship and transact forgiveness with the one who has sinned against them. Can I also just add here that um, the Pharisees were saying to John the Baptist, hey, we're righteous, we're righteous, we're righteous. And John says what? Matthew 3, 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. It's not wrong to say, show me your repentance. Let me see what it looks like. You want to know if they're really repentant. We're not just saying that the sinner is going to say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Wiping the slate clean, and now I get to go fill up the slate with something else. That's not the objective. The objective is repentance. So what does repentance look like in the sinner? Um, And then, after you get them to this point, confession, repentance, restoration, now you've got to rebuild a relationship. Now you've got to start saying, okay, where were the things that went wrong? And you're going to go through regular biblical counseling with them. You want to identify a mentor couple who will come in and help them. Uh, We've talked about a joint press release. What are you going to report? To whom will you report it? Identifying various root and fruit issues, right? So there's going to be issues that are particular to the husband, assuming in this instance that the husband is the one who has sinned. You're going to talk about his role as a husband, what his perspective about sexuality, sanctification, confession, friendship, fellowship, pride, anger. There are issues that are going to relate to the wife, Again, things like roles, suffering, forgiveness, the sufficiency of Christ, the temptation of self-righteousness. There are going to be issues that relate to them as a couple, things like communication, the role of the church, sexuality, parenting, companionship. What do all those things look like? Um, You're going to watch for other particular areas that need attention. Uh, One flesh relationship, covenantal relationship of marriage. You're going to want to teach them about biblical love. Um... And, and along with that, you're going to have to just rework the whole thing about sexuality. My, my guess is that both of them have a, viewed, a skewed perspective on biblical sexuality. And I don't know how many times I've taught 1 Corinthians 7. Every time I teach it to somebody in the counseling room, they go, wow, nobody's ever told us that before. It's just astounding. So you're going to have to teach them what, what does biblical sexuality look like. You want to talk about roles, STDs. You want to... Hey, have you been to the doctor yet? Have you been to the doctor? Have you gotten tested? Have you gotten tested? Um, Reconciliation, confession, repentance, forgiveness. Rebuilding trust. So so forgiveness is immediate. Trust takes time. All right, so rebuilding. Part of of forgiving is saying I'm, I'm, I'm pursuing getting this relationship back to where it was, but that takes time to rebuild, but I'm committed to doing it. Communication, hard issues, things like self-pity, self-righteousness, discouragement, shame, anger, pride, badgering and excessive questioning. Is it okay for a wife to ask a question if her husband has sinned in that way? Yes. Is it okay to ask him that question six times in, in four texts and two phone calls every day? No. Is it appropriate for him to validate where he is and what he's doing? Yes. Should she badger him about it? No. So watch for that. Deception. Um, Adultery just promotes a life of deception in every way. They've cultivated that for years, so you're going to watch for that. What other areas are they doing that? Sinful desires. Financial issues. 
Some adultery can be really expensive. Pregnancy. Um, again, proceed with marriage counseling. Where are we? Uh, you want to work together. Every situation is a little bit different. I mean, adultery is adultery, but they're all a, a hair bit different. So you're just going to have to be wise, pray, beg God to help you, and He will. Um, side note, you, your goal is going to be to get the, the sinner to a point of confession. Be sure that they're actually there on at least one occasion. I think I was too anxious and I got somebody there too fast, if you will, and it wasn't genuine. And we didn't take the time to see, is this really genuine? Um, And that was not to his benefit or to the benefit of the marriage. Before the confession occurs, meet with the offended to prepare her for the confession. We've already talked about that. Be careful about encouraging divorce. There are going to be situations here where some of you are going to say this is permissible for divorce. Some of you say this is not permissible about divorce, but but beware of pushing them into it. Um, I always say this is these are some options, but you don't have to. Divorce is never commanded. There were certain circumstances where some people think that There is some permission allowed, um, but it's not required. And so be careful about pushing them into that. Other topics, I think all these are in your notes, aren't they? Okay, go get a break.